Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. It's a blessing to have you guys with us. And um, yeah, we're going to have our little Bible study. We'll get started, Andy, by just bringing up on the screen uh, Regina Chaley. So let's begin, let's begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Spirit. Amen. And we say Christ is risen, and the proper response for the, in the uh, Byzantine tradition say, indeed he is risen. And Christ is risen, and you say, indeed he is risen. Uh, yesterday, we, we started yesterday, I should say, we started yesterday with a little Bible study talking about, um, about uh, kind of the con- context of that first day of the resurrection in terms of the first fruits, in terms of the feast of Pentecost and the beginning of the counting toward Pentecost was 50 days. So the resurrection happens on the first day, which is the day of the offering of the first fruits. Jesus is the, the first fruits, the first offering to God, which is so important because of course, now we're going to count 50 days to the fullness of that. When the whole harvest is going to be taken in. Yes. Pentecost. I think you guys understand what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about gathering wheat. We're talking about gathering God's people, okay? And then I shared with you uh, that quotation from um, Bargell Pixner, in which he says, he talks about the, the appearances of Christ, and he says, he says, since the resurrection, the apparitions of Jesus represent a historical, mystical experience of a completely new and different spiritual reality, they belong to a category that is beyond a purely human grasp. We, we might say they belong to the sphere of a fifth dimension, a fifth dimension, which is beyond the reach of our limited human capability as we are only able to perceive four dimensions, that is three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. The reports of the witnesses as presented by the different evangelists are therefore not easily arranged, neither factually nor chronologically. Okay, so as we're taking a look here, we keep that in mind that as the accounts are given, it's Jesus is appearing and sometimes to two people at the same time to I mean, it's a complete blowing open of of the normal uh, uh, process by which we understand. We're going to finish tonight, by the way, at the end of our program with the proclamation of the gospel, uh, the the homily of St. John Chrysostom, the Paschal homily for St. John Chrysostom, which we in the Byzantine tradition do every year on Easter. 
and we're going to share that with you tonight. We emailed it out to you during uh, the Easter season, but there's a way in which it is proclaimed. It is so famous that no Byzantine priest in the entire world dares preach a homily on Easter, on Pascha. We talked about that yesterday, on Pascha. Because because who could ever outdo St. John Chrysostom, right? So at the end of our program this evening, I'm going to go ahead and proclaim the, uh, the, the Paschal homily of St. John Chrysostom as we continue to live through this time of the resurrection, okay? Well, the different Gospels tell us different details about who went to the tomb, we get the fullest list from Mark. So we're going to get out our Bibles now. Mark chapter 16, okay? Mark chapter 16. And if you've got a little piece of paper or a little sticky note, what I recommend for tonight is going ahead and sticking a little piece of paper in there on the account in Mark. And then when we go to Matthew, you'll stick it in there. And so we get all four Gospels with our little piece of paper so we can flip back and forth really quick because there's a lot of flipping going on tonight. Okay. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 16, Mark chapter 16. And we're going to look at verse one together, Mark chapter 16, verse one. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Okay. And very early on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. Okay. Now different accounts are given different ways. The sun was just rising. It had just risen. It was still dark. Different gospel accounts. They're basically they're coming at the moment of, uh, of the, of the, of the rising of the sun. And there's a reason why they point this out. We talked a little bit about that yesterday about being at the very first moment of the offering of the first fruits. There's another further reason, which we're going to get into today a little bit. But here you go. You have this list. You have Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, okay, and Salome brought spices, okay? Uh, Luke adds, take a look at Luke. So if you have a little piece of paper there, you can put a little marker for yourself. Matthew, Mark, Luke is the next gospel that you have. We're going to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verse 10. Okay, Luke chapter 24, verse 10. Are you with me? Everybody's got it there? Gospel Luke chapter 24, verse 10. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and notice what he says, and the other women with them. So you get a little bit fuller picture, right? Joanna's with them, uh, and there's other women with them too, okay? Um, so who are these? who are these other women? One of the one of the traditions of the church, which is pretty much universal, it's not mentioned in scripture. First of all, I'm going to ask you guys: Who's missing from this scene? Who's not mentioned? The mother of God, right? Like, what happened to Mary? Well, the the, the most the most ancient traditions tell us that that Jesus actually appeared to the mother of God first before he went anywhere else. And I'm going to quote to you uh, uh, John Paul II simply because he's got a nice way of saying it, but he's representing, I've got a whole I've got a whole page of quotes here that I'm just going to skip over from the church fathers and so forth. Listen to what he says. The unique and special nature of the presence of the Virgin at Calvary, at the crucifixion, and her perfect union with the Son and his suffering on the cross seemed to postulate a very particular participation in her part in the mystery of the resurrection. 
The mother of God was probably also a privileged witness to the resurrection of Christ, in this way, completing her participation in all the essential moments of the Paschal mystery. Embracing the risen Jesus, Mary is, in addition, a sign and an anticipation of humanity, which hopes to reach its fulfillment in the resurrection from the dead. So the, the tradition of the Father says that Jesus appeared in a special way to, to the mother of God, okay? And she may have been also one of these women that were going down to anoint uh, Jesus. In the Gospel of John, now you can put a little note there, a little spot there in your Gospel of Luke if you want, if you want. But in the Gospel of John, um, we're, we're at uh, chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20. We're going to come back to the Gospel of John quite a bit tonight. But in John chapter 20, um, we... We learn that, uh, notice what John mentions. Now, on the first day of the week, this is John chapter 20, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. I love John because John always like pierces, he like, he just goes beyond. And notice what he does. Everybody else is like, ow, the sun's rising. But John says, no, 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 it's still dark. Because Mary Magdalene and the other women are going to see the rising of the sun. Not the sun's sun out there, but the sun of justice. It was still dark. The saw, and, and they saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And notice what she says. And we... Do not know where they have laid him. So while John begins and says, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, she then in her proclamation admits that or confesses that there were other women there uh, there with her. Okay. The point I, I really I want to focus on, first of all, is once we start to get this scene, we're starting to build, right? We want to build the scene. We want to kind of see what's going on. These women that are kind of gathered around the tomb and experience this empty tomb, and then they go running back. Uh, we did a little geography last night. We looked at Jerusalem and how far away or how close, depending on whether you're the Hopkins or whether you're the Carnazos. It's a long ways for the Carnazos to run from the from the, the, the tomb all the way back to uh, the upper room. But for others, maybe more fit, like Mary Magdalene, it's, you know, she's just going to zip right over there, but she's running. Okay. And that's what that's, I think it's important because it kind of sets the stage for us. Um, but this point about it being still dark. As, as one of the gospels says, as the sun was rising, or another gospel toward dawn, okay, always confirming that the Sabbath was complete. We talked about that yesterday. The Sabbath is complete. That's the old Sabbath, representing not only the Sabbath day, but the whole of the Old Testament. Because the fathers tell us that Jesus took uh, our human nature to himself, huh? the old Adam to himself. And he went to the cross on Friday. That's the sixth day of the week, which is the day in which in which the Lord created Adam and Eve. He brought us to life. And on that day, Jesus went to the cross and put the old Adam to death. Being the God of creation, he rested in the tomb on the seventh day, as we learn about in Genesis chapter 1. And then being the God of creation, he rose from the dead on the first day of the week. In, um, let's turn real quick to Matthew chapter 28, because we haven't turned there yet to put our little piece of paper in for the night. Matthew chapter 28. Okay. You're going to put your little piece of paper in there and just notice here, 
um, uh, in, in, in chapter 28, look at verse, verse seven. And this is, this is the, the, the instruction which the angels give. And like, I'm going to come back. Actually, I'm going to come back up to, uh, verse two, which is where we ended last, last, uh, last night too. So I'm in Matthew chapter 28, verse two. Okay. And behold, there was an earthquake. Now I'm going to just stop for, for, for Rhonda, Lanny, Melanie. This is why on Pascha, when we come into the church, the chandeliers are all swinging in the church to remember this moment of the earthquake. And then the chandeliers begin to swing at the moment of the resurrection. Okay. So behold, there was an earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. Now, I want you to hold on to a couple of things because we're going to tie some of these things together. That is the appearance of the angel. In, 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 here in Matthew, the, angels, the, the stone is rolled back and the angel sits upon the stone outside the tomb and invites them to come and see. But take a look now. You've got your piece of paper. Flip back over now with me to Mark chapter 16, which is where I said to stick your piece of paper. That was the first one we went to. Okay. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 16. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is the second one. Mark chapter 16, verse 3. Okay. You guys with me? Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 16, verse 3. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone was rolled back, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, and notice here, Mark doesn't mention the angel sitting on the stone. But entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. John's going to go on and tell us, by the way, there's two angels that are inside. So there's these different accounts that are given of the experience of what's taking place. Um, and, and uh, whether there's one angel, there's two angels, are they inside or the outside? Here's what Augustine says. According to Matthew, the angel sat upon the stone which had been rolled from the tomb. Whereas Mark says upon entering the tomb, the women were astounded to see a young man sitting on the right, dressed in a white robe. This discrepancy would be troubles, troubling unless we understand that Matthew remains silent concerning the angel whom he saw when they entered the tomb, and Mark remains silent concerning the angel whom they saw sitting on the stone outside the tomb. If this be the case, the women saw two angels and heard from them about Jesus progressively, first from the one who sat on the stone outside the tomb, and then from the one whom they sat sitting into the right when they entered the tomb. They went into the tomb, then because they had been exhorted to do so by the angel sitting outside, and when he said, when he said come and see where the Lord was placed, upon entering it, as it was written, they saw and heard similar things from the angel sitting on the right side of the tomb, who is mentioned by Mark, but ignored by Matthew. Do you see that? So I, I share this with you guys, and I've got a number of quotes like this from the church fathers tonight for you. Um, uh, but I share this with you, it's very important that, that some people will, will try to like uh, question our faith. Let's say, see, there's different these different stories. You know, this, these questions have been asked from the very beginning. So here you got a father of the church and who's 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 commenting on the very thing that that you know 
a history channel will try to tear apart Christianity for. And I'm not going to buy into it. Whenever you hear this, the attack on Christianity, trust me, the fathers of the church have already dealt with the problem or the apparent problem if we approach it with no faith. Okay? All right. The second divergence is regarding the women. Okay? In Matthew, and I'm not going to have you turn there right now for sake of time, but in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8, it says that they ran to the disciples to tell them what they saw. Okay? Remember Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John, right? She takes off and goes to Peter and John, and then they come running back, and she's running behind them. Okay? It says they ran to the disciples. But in Mark chapter 16, verse 8, take a look right there. We're right there. We're already there. Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Okay? All right. Uh, Luke goes back and confirms it. They go and tell the eleven and all the rest. Okay? The fathers of the church explain that they were filled with both joy and fear at the same time. The soldiers were like dead men on the ground. I, this is important, guys. Remember I was talking about yesterday about getting our modern concepts, our modern pictures of like the Easter bunny jumping around in the background. You got the, the bright flowers. It's a tomb. It's a graveyard. Okay? It is also described as a garden. Here now, the women come. And remember we were talking about that fear they must have had, right? They're coming in the middle of the night, and they know the soldiers are guarding the tomb. They know these guys just murdered Jesus. And now they come, and now get our correct understanding of what's going on. They get to the tomb, and the soldiers appear to be dead. They appear to be dead. They're laying on the ground with no response, okay? The soldiers were like dead men on the ground. The angels show brighter than anything they had ever seen. The no one that they spoke to, fathers tell us, were, were those at the tomb. The soldiers, the angels, and one another. And I want you to imagine going there. They see an angel. I mean, seriously, you see an angel standing in front of you. You know, you don't turn to your buddy and be like, hey, check it out. It's an angel. No, no. What? And the soldiers are dead and the tomb is empty. And they went silent. They didn't speak to one another. They didn't speak to the soldiers. They didn't speak to the angels. They just ran for their lives. At the sight of all of this, they didn't speak to anyone. But confused, they went running to the only place they knew to be safe. And that was the upper room where the apostles were. And then when they got there, they let it all out. Again, Augustine says, it may be asked how Mark could say, and going out, they fled from the tomb, but trembling and astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Whereas Matthew says, they departed quickly from the tomb for fear and joy, great joy, running to the, tell the disciples. The apparent discrepancy between the two accounts is resolved if we understand that the women dared to say nothing to the angels, that is, to respond to what they had heard from them, or to the guards whom they had seen lying dead on the ground. For the joy of which Matthew speaks is not opposed to the fear of which Mark recounts. We ought to understand that both fear and joy were at once awakened in their minds, even if Matthew had failed to speak of fear. But the question is settled when he says, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Now, what is unique to Matthew, let's turn back there very quick. Turn back to Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them, these are the women, and said to them, Hail. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. 
Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, go to Galilee. They will see me. So look, here's what basically I'm going to give you guys the basics here. And I got St. John Chrysostom on this, um, this, this point. But here are the basics. Look, Jesus uh, uh, rises from the dead. The women come down to the tomb. Okay. And they see this whole situation going on. The tomb's empty. The guys are dead. The soldier, the angels are there. And they go running off. Now, let me share with you. I'm going to keep that, stop that point for a second. I'm going to share with you St. John Chrysostom. After they had departed for fear and joy, Jesus met them saying, Hail. They ran to him with great joy and gladness. They took hold of his feet. Thus they received by touch an irrefutable proof of his resurrection with full personal assurance of it. And they worshiped him. What he, what does he then say? Do not be afraid. Again, Jesus himself casts out their fear, making room for faith. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Note well how he himself sends good tidings to his disciples by these women. He thereby brings honor to women. As I have often said, and by the said, honor to that sex, which is so often dishonored, right? In their context, in that pagan culture. Some among you would, would desire to be like these faithful women. You too may wish to take hold of the feet of Jesus. You can. Even now, you can embrace not only his feet, but also his hands and even his sacred head. You too can today receive these awesome mysteries with a pure conscience. You can embrace him not only in this life, but all, but also even more fully on that day when you shall see him coming with unspeakable glory, with a multitude of angels. If you are so disposed, along with him to be compassionate, you shall hear not only these words, all hail, but also those other words, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Okay, our third kind of uh, uh, challenge or difficulty that we face in these accounts, probably the most difficult to resolve, is that um, regarding these women and Mary Magdalene. Was she with them or was she not with them? And I have to tell you, there's no good answer. Except, except if we take the empty tomb and the angels, as I said yesterday, to be one of the revelations of the resurrection. Okay, Mark tells us in his gospel in verse nine. In fact, just go ahead and turn there real quick. Mark, you should have it marked in your thing there. Mark chapter 16, verse nine. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe. Mark tells us that he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and John follows the same path. But Matthew says that he appeared first to the women. We just read that, right? They're running back from the tomb, and he appears to them. And Luke actually names these women that he appeared to when he left the tomb, and he names Mary Magdalene in that group. Do you see the problem that we face, right? Mary Magdalene runs from the tomb to go tell Peter and John. In the Gospel of John, that the tomb is empty. But in Matthew, it says that while they're running, Jesus appears to the women. And Mary Magdalene is named among them. Okay? Uh, in Luke, the women arrive at the upper room announcing the appearance. And everything is in an uproar. Okay, let's take a look at Luke because we haven't really done much there. Luke chapter 24, 
Luke chapter 24, verse, starting with verse 9. Luke chapter 24, you should have it marked in your Bible there. Luke chapter 24, verse 9. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. Words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping down, looking, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home wondering at what had happened. I'll share with you what I think. My father Hezekiah's theory. Okay, I'll throw my hat in the ring. That Mary may have gone to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, earlier than the rest. As John says, she got there before, while it was still dark. And that the other women trailed behind her, but joined her there at the tomb. But when they saw the angels, the soldiers laying there dead, and they began to run back, she parted from them. Immediately, on seeing the tomb empty, she went and told Peter and John. And the account of John's gospel proceeds, which we're going to look at in a second. And while all of this is taking place, Jesus appears to the women and to Mary Magdalene in different places. Regardless, regardless, the situation must have been crazy. And I want, this is what I, I kind of hope you kind of get with this, the dead soldiers. I want you to imagine what this must have been like for them to arrive at the upper room and burst through the door, crying, maybe even screaming, hysterical. Could it possibly be true? The Jews apparently have stolen his body. The guards are dead. They're yelling at the apostles. And they're rushing in. And all are telling their particular version of what they saw and didn't see. What's the result? In these accounts, it says they didn't believe the women. For good reason. These women had seen something that nobody in the history of the world had ever seen. The situation must have been absolutely crazy. And so they went to see for themselves. Luke tells us that these words seemed to be idle talk. The fathers are unanimous in seeing in this moment of the resurrection, in the context of the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents. Whereas Eve had believed and Adam had fallen, Eve had believed the angel, not the good angel, where Eve had believed the evil one, and Adam had fallen. Now the men do not trust the women. However, they also, the fathers, see in this the mercy of God. Whereas Eve had spoken the word of deceit to Adam, now she becomes the bearer of the saving word of God. St. Leo the Great offers us a beautiful insight. He says this, The spirit of truth would by no means have permitted this hesitation, the wavering in human weakness, to enter into the hearts of his apostles. If their trembling and anxiety and questioning and delay were not to have the established, have established the foundations of our faith. Consequently, it was our doubts and our danger that was being considered in the apostles 
We, in the guise of the apostles, were being instructed against the slander of the wicked and the proofs of earthly wisdom. Their seeing instructed us. Their hearing informed us. Their touching strengthened us. Let us give thanks for the divine plan and the necessary slowness of the Holy Fathers. They doubted so that we need not doubt in the truth of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene tells the apostles, the women tell the apostles, they come in and Peter and John take off and Mary Magdalene takes off right behind them. They outrun her. They get to the tomb first. Let's turn to the gospel of John. Now we're going to spend the most of the rest of our time here. Okay. The gospel of John, and we're going to start and we're going to read a bit and we're going to uh, break off. Okay. We're going to come to um, chapter 20 and we're going to look at, um, well, I'm going to come up just a bit. I'm going to come up to chapter 19, verse 38. And I'm just going to skip through a couple things. Okay, verse 38. So I'm in chapter 19, verse 30 of the Gospel of John. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also, who had been at first had come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, where no one had ever been laid. Now guys, details like this aren't just given for any reason, okay? So you got to pay attention to details, the garden, the empty tomb. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it's still dark. And they saw the stone that had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and told Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple is John. He never names himself in his gospel. So we're in the gospel of John. He always calls himself the other disciple. Okay. Um, the one whom Jesus loved and said to him, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. But Peter then came out with the other disciple and they went toward the tomb. They, they both ran, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look. In he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin which had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up on the side by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures and that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Here's what Augustine says, that the eyes that had sought for the Lord and had not found him were now free for tears, grieving more that he had been taken away from the sepulcher than that he had been slain on the wooden cross, since not even a memorial place is now left behind. All right, Mary Magdalene, the eyes that had sought for the Lord, I know I already read this, but I'm going to read it again. And not found him were now free for tears, grieving more that he had been taken away from the sepulcher than that he had been slain on the wooden cross. Since not even a memorial place is left. Your text of the Gospel of John and the resurrection account in its proper context. In its proper context, just keep your hand right there. I'm going to flip back to John chapter 1. You already have a marker there because that's the end of the Gospel. 
of Luke. Notice how John begins his gospel. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was made nothing that was made. And in him was life, and it was light, and the light was a light was a light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not take it in, could not comprehend it. Right? I don't know your translation, whatever. And you got to memorize this. It's so important. In the beginning, John says, telling us, you're going to read what Jesus is going to do. You're going to read it because he's going to solve the problem from the very beginning. And I'm going to take you back to the beginning because Jesus is going to give us everything back. Which is why, by the way, in John chapter 18, we begin the entire passion narrative specifically chosen by Jesus. Where? John chapter 18, verse 1. John chapter 18, verse 1. Look at this with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples. This is after the mystical supper, the last supper. Across the Kidron Valley, a place where there was a garden. Father James groaning. How significant this choice was. I'm sorry, I, missed, I skipped a few sentences. For the beginning of his passion, he chose a wonderfully beautiful garden. How significant this choice was. In a garden, the first Adam had committed the first sin, the sin of disobedience. And therefore, it was in a garden that second Adam should say to his father, not what I will, but what thou wilt. In a garden, Adam, by an abuse of liberty, had plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity. In a garden, therefore, by the bonds of Christ, our fetters were to be broken. In a garden, God had pronounced the death penalty upon Adam. Hence, in a garden, Christ would take upon himself the judgment and this curse. In a garden, the human race was lost. Usually an object is sought where it was lost. St. Ephraim in his hymns on, uh, uh, in Nisbean hymns says this, Our Lord subdued his might and they seized him so that by his living death, he might give life to Adam. He gave his hands to be pierced by the nails in place of that hand which had plucked the fruit in paradise. He was struck on the cheek in the judgment hall in return for that mouth that had devoured in Eden. Because Adam had misstepped with his foot, he had gone to places he shouldn't have gone. They pierced his feet. Our Lord was stripped naked so that we might be clothed in modesty. With gall and vinegar, he made sweet the bitter venom that the serpent had poured into mankind. Remember yesterday I spoke about the church as the return to paradise. And if Jesus is going to restore us to what we lost in paradise, if he's going to save us from the sin of Adam, then he must do what Adam failed to do. And so I ask you, what was, Jesus, what was Adam's job? What was Adam's job in the beginning? Shepherd. Hmm. Gardener. Ah, he was to till and keep, wasn't he? What kind of person tills and keeps? A gardener tills and keeps. It is not by accident then in John chapter 19, John specifically mentions in verse 41 that Jesus was placed in a garden. And in chapter 20, verse 1, that it was the first day of the week and that it was still dark. 
Because if you know the story of Genesis, which John has you in, in your mind, you know that on the first day of the week, God created the light. He spoke and light came into the world. John is going to tell us that there is a new creation. And the light is again going to shine in the darkness. And the darkness will not be able to comprehend it. St. Ephraim says in his hymns on the crucifixion, I shared this with you last night, and we're, we're coming to a close here. Christ's tomb and the garden are symbols of Eden, where Adam died a hidden death. For he had fled and hidden himself among the trees as though he had entered a tomb and been covered over. The living one, once entombed, is now arisen in the garden and raised up Adam who had fallen in the garden. In the tomb does Christ bring Adam in glory to the marriage feast of the garden of paradise. And if this is the framework by which we're meant to read the gospel of John, then what Adam was meant to do in paradise and what Jesus is going to reveal himself as in the new garden is critically important. Mary first sees Jesus there in the garden. Let's come to verse 11, chapter 20, verse 11. And Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look down into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, he said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Father Mark Gruber says this. Did Mary suppose him to be the gardener? She was wrong, and yet she was right. He was a gardener, not as she supposed, but this was the gardener who placed Adam and Eve in paradise, who provided Eden for them of every kind of flowering tree, a fruitful vine. This was the original gardener who created us in his image and likeness, who gave to us through Adam and Eve the invitation to union with God and was now going to restore us to the garden from which we had been banished. Dom Prosper Garanger says so beautifully on that great Easter day, Magdalene, like a morning star, announced the rising of the son of justice, who was never more to set. Woman, said Jesus to her, why weepest thou? Thou art not mistaken. He seemed to say, it is indeed the divine gardener speaking to thee, the same that planted Eden in the beginning, but now dry thy tears in this new garden, whose center is an empty tomb. Paradise is restored. The angels no longer close the entrance. Here is the tree of life, which has borne fruit these three days past. The fruit which thou, O woman, art eager as of old to seize and taste belongs to thee now by right, for thou art no longer Eve. But Mary, if thou art bidden not to touch it yet, it is because as thou wouldst not heretofore taste the fruit of death thyself alone. Remember paradise. Thou mayest not now enjoy the fruit of life till thou bringest back him who was first lost through thee. Go and get the disciples. I'm going to finish right here. I'm going to come back up now to verse 14. Saying this, she turned and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, woman, why do you weep? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni. Jesus said to her, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father, to your father, to my God and to your God. I'm going to finish with Father Mark Gruber. When did Mary no longer see the gardener, but see the risen son of God? When did her eyes finally perceive that he was not a caretaker, a custodian? He was not a maintenance worker, but the divine son of the living God, the risen Christ. St. John's gospel tells us that when Jesus uttered but one word, her eyes were opened. And that word that he uttered was simply her name, Mary. No one can reproduce the timbre of the Savior's voice, its warmth. It's, it's resonance, it's cadence, but it is a sound that came from his lips, a sound which revealed in its speaking the depth of love in his heart. There is a way of naming someone that is greater than sound by speaking the name more accurate than syllables, more expressive than words. And Jesus, the divine teacher who held crowds spellbound for years, who spoke as no one had ever spoke, spoke, but just one word. And by a single word, he captured him grasped her. He identified her. He knew her. Her whole being was, as it were, laid bare before him. And in a moment, she was quickened by the naming of her name, Mary, to be known and yet to be loved, to be well-known and to be well-loved, to be seen and to be called out, to be named and identified with intimate love. That is what Jesus conveyed by a single word. In a single moment, Mary knew that no one else could love like that but him. Mary knew that no one knew her heart and soul like that but him. How well she knew that no one else could speak her name like that but him. She answered him, Rabboni. See, John tells us that the word Rabboni means teacher. Actually, the word rabbi means teacher. Rabboni is the familiar form of the word in Aramaic, which denotes the, the meaning my teacher. It is personal. My, he belongs to me. Mary, Jesus said. My teacher, she answered, it was a kind of betrothal of the divine heart to the heart of this woman. They named each other. That's how she recognized him, by the sound of her name. Okay, now, I hope you enjoyed this program. It has some, some insights. Um, we're going to just finish tonight in two ways, as I promised you. Can we do the homily of St. John Chrysostom? When... When the priest says, angered, you got to respond, angered. Huh? Hades is angered when Jesus rises from the dead. And when he's risen, you got to say, risen. The Paschal <laughs> Homily of St. John Chrysostom. Let all pious men and all lovers of God rejoice in the splendor of this feast. Let the wise servants blissfully enter into the joy of their Lord. Let those who have borne the burden of Lent now receive their pay. And those who have toiled since the first hour, let them now receive their due reward. Let anyone who came after the third hour be grateful to join in the feast. And those who may have come after the sixth, let them not be afraid of being too late. For the Lord is gracious, and he receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him who comes at the eleventh hour as well as to him who has toiled since the first. Yes, he has pity on the last and he serves the first. He rewards the one and is generous to the other. He repays the deed and he praises the effort. Come you all 
Enter into the joy of your Lord. You the first and you the last receive alike your reward. You the rich and the poor dance together. You sober and you weakling celebrate the day you who have kept the fast and you who have not rejoiced today. The table is richly laden. Enjoy its royal banquet. The calf is a fatted one. Let no one go away hungry. All of you enjoy the banquet of faith. All of you receive the riches of his goodness. Let no one grieve over his poverty for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep over his sins for pardon has shown forth from the grave. Let no one fear death for the death of our Savior has set us free. Let He has destroyed it by enduring it. He has despoiled Hades by going down into its kingdom. He has angered it by allowing it to taste of his flesh. When Isaiah foresaw all this, he cried out, Oh, Hades, you have been angered by encountering him in the netherworld. Hades is angered. Angered. It is frustrated. It is angered. Angered. Because it is mocked, it is angered. Angered. Because it has been destroyed, it is angered. Angered. Because it has been reduced to naught, it is angered. Angered. Because it is now captive, it seized a body, and lo, it discovered God. It seized earth, and behold, it encountered heaven. It seized the visible and was overcome by the invisible. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen. Risen. are abolished. Christ is risen. Risen. The demons are cast down. Christ is risen. Risen. Angels rejoice. Christ is risen. Risen. And life is freed. Christ is risen. Risen. And the tomb is emptied of the dead. For Christ being risen from the dead has become the leader and reviver of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power unto ages of ages. Uh, Christ is risen. Indeed, Christ he is risen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. All right. Here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to con- conclude the evening with our uh, special hymn tonight um, called it called "Shine, Shine." A family's going to join with us. An angel cried out, which is um, comes to us from the Byzantine tradition. We're going to sing this together. So here we go. It's it's, um, it's a very beautiful hymn. Very similar, by the way, to Regina Chaley regarding this praise of the mother of God. Okay? All right. The angel cried out to the God who is full of praise. Hail the virgin. Hail again. For your son is risen. From the tomb of Jerusalem, for the glory of the Lord has shone upon you. Rejoice and be glad, O Zion, and you of your heart.
and you of your heart, while mother of God, exalt in the resurrection of your Son. Shine, shine, O New Jerusalem, for the glory of the Lord has shown upon you. Rejoice and be glad, O Zion, and you of your one, O Mother of God, exalt in the resurrection of your Son. All right. We'll be transitioning to Q&A here. Father, you ready for our first question? Oh, yeah, sure. As long as it's easy. Yeah. Oh, no, I deleted all the hard ones. <laughs> Go ahead, Andy. Jerome was right at any, you know, you were touching on the theme of, of where you're returning to the beginning, right? And I know that you were talking on that more uh, yesterday, but we also were touching on that theme. Jerome writes in and is asking, didn't the church begin at the Annunciation uh, when the word became flesh? Mm. So, we, yeah, we talked about this last night. I'm not going to, the people that were here, I don't know if Jerome was with us last night, but um, and, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to bring a beautiful quotation I have for you to uh, next week during the pre-class discussion, that tailgate party. But, but the ultimate answer to that is to realize that it's not this, this late, uh, you know, fix it job by Jesus. But ultimately, I said this last night, I'll just cut to the chase. The church is eternal. You say, well, God's the only eternal one. Exactly. And God lives in a, in a, in a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that communion of persons, that original assembly, which is what uh, the church ecclesia means, an assembly, uh, is, is, is manifest on earth in his creation, which is why we're made for one another, right? Man and woman made for one another. Families are created by God to manifest the life of the Trinity. Okay? So we can say the church is eternal present eternally in the, in the three, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The church is a created reality to be in the image and likeness of God. It's God's original plan in paradise. And the church is restored in the work of Jesus Christ, who brings us back to the place where he wants us. He's not going to be beat. It's his plan to begin with. The devil's not going to beat God. So he doesn't change his plan because the evil one or because of our sins. No, he finds a way to bring us back from our sins to the place where he wants us to be. And so important then to understand the Eucharist, Holy Chrismation, marriage, all these things that are we call the sacraments of the church are God's original plan for us. It's not, it's not this, you know, all of a sudden, oh, you have to, well, never mind. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give that quote uh, tomorrow. Okay. Speaking of these quotes, uh, a couple of people are writing in Mary Ann uh, Hartzell being a representative of them. I was wondering, would, would it be possible to receive those quotes like uh, in a document or word document or notes or something like that? My notes, my notes are, you know, they're notes. They're not like helpful. Marianne, give me a call. Okay. There you go. Uh, Harold Gomez is wondering if there's a significance of the uh, specific place positioning of the angels at the head and the foot. It was reminding him of the Ark of the Covenant, but he didn't know if he was reading too much into that. Well, yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, but why the Ark of the Covenant? So you always, in our minds, in our minds, we always have to go back. So yes, the Ark of the Covenant, but the Ark of the Covenant is a midpoint, right? It's a midway, this communication of God. You know, the Jews uh, believed, I think what really happened, the Lord spoke to them audibly to the high priest when he entered the Holy of Holies once a year. 
um, and he prostrated before the ark in the in the holy voice, completely dark room. The ark of the covenant is there, and that God audibly spoke to him through the mercy seat, through the wings of the angels, which created what is called the mercy seat, right over the ark. Um, but why the angels there guarding the way? This this communication, and not only that, in the temple in Jerusalem, the angels were placed at the at the doors, and so that you had to pass by the angels to enter in. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and the Temple in Jerusalem was a reestablishment of Paradise itself. Why? When you read the description in Second Kings or First Kings, Second Kings, Second Kings of the description of the Temple, it is said that uh, it was made in, in seven years. It was dedicated in seven days. And when the entire inside is covered in golden grapevines, pomegranates, lilies, it was a golden garden. Okay? And and you want to know what the uh, what the high priest was told to do when he entered into there once a year? He's told to do two things. In Hebrew, avad shamar, to till and to keep. Those are the words that are told to the high priest. When you go in there, that's what you're supposed to do. The same words that Adam and Eve failed to do. The same thing, and which Jesus then does. And this whole thing about Jesus is the gardener. Mary Magdalene sees the gardener because she perceives him doing what Adam had failed to do. You see? It's a beautiful picture. We'll, maybe we'll share it next time. Of uh, I think it's Joto or one of those guys. There's, and Jesus is standing there. Mary Magdalene comes up, and um, and he's he's like this. He's saying, don't touch me. But, then, but he's holding a hoe over his shoulder. Okay, which is kind of cool. Lanny, did you have a question? It looks like you're, um, if you, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I was trying. Um, you were reading some, from Father Martin Gruber. What were you reading? Is it, can we also read it? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's a book. Uh, I'll give you a link to the book, okay? And we'll give okay. it in, in the post-event email. We'll give a link to that book. It's okay. a, the cover is strange. And, okay, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to send it out now. Father Mark Gruber is a, is a friend of mine. I know his nephew, who's also a priest. Father Mark Gruber spent many years with the monks in the Coptic monks in the deserts of Egypt. And he's written a story about he's a Benedictine monk, but he, he lived among them for like a year or more. But his his poetic insights into these things are phenomenal and uh, a quite beautiful poetry that he wrote. And I think inspired very much by the Coptic monks, monks and his experience there. But we'll give you the link if you can pick up that book. I don't know if it's even in print anymore or not. All right, guys. See ya, and God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.